DC rockers Bad Brains are among the best-known hardcore bands in history. They're famous for their live shows. Imagine a scene like this. Lead singer HR is flailing, his voice curdled from screaming, and drummer Earl Hudson rides the cymbals hard. A song later, the band dips into reggae. The kids who were moshing just a minute ago are now letting their shoulders slump, swaying from side to side, until Dr. No fires up the guitar again and the audience turns back into a pit. Maybe you've experienced this in person, maybe you've just heard about it. But whatever's the case, for a lot of people, Bad Brains are one of the only black rock bands they've heard of. Let's talk some more about that. I'm Cecilia Johnson, and this is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For our second season, we're exploring the history of First Avenue, the downtown Minneapolis venue that has become one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest clubs. So far, we've seen First Avenue evolve from the depot to Uncle Sam's to Sam's. For this episode, we'll jump ahead to 1982, when Bad Brains, Sweet Taste of Africa, and Husker Du shared the main room stage. We set out to tell a story about one of the most revered bands in punk music. But we ended up learning a lesson that while representation is definitely necessary, if you treat individuals' identities as their virtues, you can actually allow them less humanity and excuse the harm that they've done. Honestly, this episode presented a lot of challenges, and we want to let you in on them as we tell this story. So let's do that. I'm super excited to introduce our guest host for this episode. She runs the show Rock and Roll Over at the University of Minnesota's Radio K, and her name is Zoe Challenger. She's definitely one of our youngest guest hosts this season, but I can already tell she has a ton of talent and wisdom to share with the world. Here she is. I'm Zoe Challenger. Being a Twin Cities native, I am embarrassed to say that my first concert at First Avenue was when No Name came to town in January of 2019. I was 19 years old and I went alone. While I grew up with a desire for musical exploration, I did not grow up in a musical household by any means. I told my parents I was going with a friend, when in reality I couldn't find anyone to go with me. So I draped my mother's elegant hand-me-down wool coat over my plaid skirt, crop top, and tattered stockings. I let the material confidence override any underlying social anxieties. As an only child, I've never been afraid of being alone, but walking into a venue by myself brought up some new feelings. Since that night, I found myself at the First Avenue main room or the 7th Street entry nearly once a week until the coronavirus pandemic hit the nation. Most of the time, I would arrive alone, but over time, I would find myself running into more and more familiar faces at any given show. Maneuvering the block of 7th Street and Hennepin Avenue will always be an act of muscle memory. Over the last 50 years, First Avenue has hosted a variety of big names, but the early 1980s were jam-packed. From 1982 to 1984, the calendar swerved from funk to punk to new wave, with acts ranging from talk box legends Zap and Roger, to Minnesotan rockers The Replacements, to Bow Wow Wow, the band behind I Want Candy, 
That's not to mention Prince, U2, Ray Charles, and then-unknown Wynton Marsalis. But if you were to look through the 1980s First Ave band files that are now housed at the Minnesota Historical Society, you'd struggle to find a particular category of artists, well-known Black American rockers. The Minnesota music community has a lot of excuses for this, the most common one being there weren't that many Black rock bands to book. It's true that funk and soul were much more popular among Black Americans, especially those raised in the church, but it's too easy to say that Black rock wasn't a thing. In fact, according to those band files, rock-adjacent bands War, Ipso Facto, and Defunct played First Avenue in the early 80s. But aside from historical society files, those shows hardly left a paper trail, whether in microfilm archives or the internet. Which brings us to an issue at the heart of this story. Which legacies last, and which fade away? The story of Bad Brains is fairly well established. The DC group originally banded together in the 1970s as a jazz fusion ensemble called Mind Power. After going to a Bob Marley concert and hearing the Ramones song, Bad Brain, they were influenced enough to change not only their name, but also their sound, ending up with a mix of punk rock and reggae. At this point, a pattern was beginning to form with Black musicians who dove into punk music. They were often eclectic in their genre molding and evolution. In Minneapolis, local punk bands who'd been performing at bars like Duffy's and The Longhorn had a new room to fill, the 7th Street Entry, a small space off the side of the 1st Avenue main room. And I was just saying, we got this empty room, it's a storage area. Around the same time as he opened the entry, general manager Steve McClellan hired Chrissy Dunlap, who ended up booking the space. I started out just 100% Steve's assistant. You know, his desk and office generally was just filled up with contracts, writers, promo material, cassette tapes everywhere. And I would go in there and just try to prioritize, tell him this needs to be signed. And then I would just sort of take the promo material and start promoting shows. And as time went on, a lot of that detailed stuff ended up leaving Steve's desk and over to my desk. And the bands would start calling, you know, looking for gigs. You know, I started out giving the info to Steve and kind of working on him with it, but he was busy doing the real talent buying. So, and I was there during the day more when the phone rang and people stopped by with cassettes and stuff. So I just kind of little by little picked it up. One of the bands Chrissy would book a lot were Who's Do, the St. Paul punk group who opened for Bad Brains at First Avenue. But that's not a huge surprise. In the 80s, they were playing upwards of 60 shows a year. Who's Do guitarist Bob Mould wanted to tell us about this era. But right when we were producing this episode, he was actually called for jury duty. While Bob did his civic duty, we grabbed a clip from the audiobook of his memoir, See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody. We started the spring tour in the Midwest with our four-year anniversary gig at First Avenue in Minneapolis. First Avenue was originally a bus depot in downtown Minneapolis. It became a nightclub in 1970, and 7th Street Entry was the coat check before becoming its own 300-capacity music room. First Avenue had been a cornerstone of the Midwest rock scene for years, and to play the 1,200-capacity main room was the goal of many a Midwest musician. Along with Bob, bassist Greg Norton and drummer-songwriter Grant Hart recorded their debut album, Land Speed Record, at the entry in 81 and they released it via New Alliance in January 1982. The band always played with purpose. There wasn't a lot of goofing around in the live shows. 
On the faster material, Greg would start jumping in the air or do scissor kicks. I, I typically wore a grave, glowering expression, digging deep into my guitar when not singing. Grant was behind the kit, looking much like Animal from the Muppet Show band, except with longer hair and bare feet. We were young and inexperienced, but we had tons of energy and were able to create a solid wall of sound. In selecting this show as one of First Avenue's pivotal nights, we are excited to focus on the positive, celebrating punk heroes Husker Du and Bad Brains on one bill. But it didn't turn out to be that easy. There was a loose network, which we often discovered by chance, where like-minded bands would share a stage and the hometown band would offer accommodations to the traveling band. In return, when that band came to your town, you would reciprocate. Sometimes you'd run into a band that didn't understand or appreciate the idea. When Bad Brains stayed with Grant and his parents, they took Grant's pod and left behind an anti-gay note. Some gratitude, but once people caught the drift of those bands, they were usually shunned and eventually they faded away. Bob and Grant's sexualities were open secrets in the Minneapolis punk scene. Bob would come out as gay in a Spin article in 1994, and Grant is on record talking about his bisexuality around that time. Bob and Grant wanted to avoid becoming pigeonholed for their identities, but when you consider the scope of their experiences and how scary the AIDS crisis was, their angry, frenetic catalog takes on new meaning. Gays in the hardcore punk scene were much like gays in the military. If the military says don't ask, don't tell, the hardcore punk corollary was don't advertise, don't worry. If someone made a disparaging remark about gays, I would simply say that's not cool or you're so ignorant. It was, it was a way to make my feelings known without broadcasting my sexuality. Generally, there was no more homophobia in the hardcore scene than anywhere else in America, although as 1981 progressed, the media began reporting on the gay cancer and Homophobia escalated throughout the country. Number-wise, the hardcore scene didn't seem any more or less populated by homosexuals than most major cities were. Then again, the scene attracted the margin walkers, the folks who were outside the norms of society. So maybe there was a slightly higher ratio of gays to straights. According to several sources, Grant wasn't the only person Bad Brains mistreated. Lori Barbero, who drummed and sang in Babes in Toyland, remembers similar behavior towards Randy Biscuit Turner of Texas punk quartet The Big Boys. I think they did the same thing to one of the guys from The Big Boys down in Austin, Texas, because he was gay. And I heard kind of the same story. It's like, then don't, if you know they're gay, why would you even stay at their house? In Finding Joseph I, an oral history of HR from Bad Brains, Punk rock activist Mark Anderson also mentions the band's mistreatment of Biscuit. He echoes Bob Moulds' thoughts on margin walkers. Quote, Weren't we all in the punk rock underground because we were all different? And because none of us felt like we really belonged out there? In 1989, Bad Brains released the song Don't Blow Bubbles, which guitarist Dr. No describes as an angry warning to homosexuals. One chorus goes, quote, Don't blow no bubbles and we can stop the AIDS. Don't blow no spikes. Don't blow no fudge buns. Ask Jaw and he'll make the change. By this point, 100,000 cases of HIV AIDS had been reported in the United States, and the public health crisis would get much worse before the government approved the first antiretroviral drugs in 1995. It's shocking to hear HR cite PMA, Bad Brains' catchphrase, Positive Mental Attitude, in the same song as he encourages as a fundamentalist Rastafarian that non-straights pray the gay away. 
In 2007, bassist Daryl Jennifer addressed the band's past worldview with some remorse, saying, quote, damn right I was a homophobe. You have to grow to be wise. As more details about Bad Brains' homophobia came to light, the current Rewind team weren't feeling too good about focusing this episode on such a disappointing group. So, we turn to the third band on that night's lineup, Sweet Taste of Africa. Before learning about the show, I had actually never heard of that band before, and neither had our producer, Cecilia Johnson. But we were excited to learn that they were from the Twin Cities. Yeah, I came to the Twin Cities in the 80s, and I've been in, you know, participating in the, in the, in the music and art industry uh, all that time. This is Joe Shalita, Sweet Taste of Africa's lead guitarist and the man the Twin Cities Daily Planet has called the face of African music in the Twin Cities. He grew up in Uganda and moved to Minneapolis in 1979. You know, when you grow up in Africa, you have a music is a big part of our culture. People are tilling the garden. They're always, you know, using music to till the garden or till the land, whether they're chopping trees down, they'll be singing along. And when he got to Minneapolis, he found a small but strong African music scene. In those days, really, live, there were a whole lot of live bands, live groups of Almost every genre, but Simba was the original roots reggae band in, in, in the Twin Cities. And then there was the Calypso band, which was Shangoya, with the late, great uh, Peter Nelson. Uh, and then there was Sweet Taste of Africa, which was our band, which performed strictly African music. We are children of the Nile. We are children of the Nile. We are children of the Nile. Hassan was our lead singer, and then there was uh, Mr. Robert Mpambara who was on bass. Uh, he's still in the Twin Cities. I was on lead guitar and also singing. And then there was uh, Mr. David Mutebi from Uganda also. Mr. Mpambara is from Uganda. I was from Uganda. Uh, Mr. Mutebi from Uganda. So we Ugandans dominated the band. <laughs> uh, he played uh, rhythm guitar. And then we had um, Native Minnesotans who played. Uh, we had uh, the late Paul McGee on percussion, Mr. Ben Hill on drums. In 1980, the band helped organize an event called AfroFest. But most of the time, they had to rely on white bookers to let them on stage. We were really stubborn because uh, getting into First Avenue was not easy. Uh, And I know personally, I kept harassing uh, Mr. McClellan, Steve McClellan. And I'm sure he got tired of listening to my voice. Is that Joshua Leader calling again? (laughs) Steve, wherever you're listening, you know, it's true because I kept bugging him all the time. He said, you got to give me a chance. Come on, man. You know, how many times do you have an African band on your stage? And then, you know, fortunately, First Avenue started having these big uh, African stars coming in to grace the stage. You know, they had like Tabule, Rocheru, who was like one of the superstars of Africa, came to First Avenue. And, and I think that opened their, their eyes, too, to say, okay, I, I, I was young in those days. But um, eventually they let us uh, open for some artists, Bad Brains being <laughs> one of them. Sweet Taste of Africa spent a little time in the studio, but to Shalita's knowledge, none of their music was ever released to the public. 
there are some some YouTube videos of Sweet Taste of Africa. Have you seen them? I have seen them. Yeah, I know. They're so good. I was skinny with a huge afro. <laughs> I, I I think uh, David and Hassan may have some recordings, but I don't have any myself. Mm-hmm. I just look at those ones on YouTube and and marvel at the at the quality of the sound and musicianship. I was like, what? <laughs> According to Joe, the band had some creative differences, and they broke up in 1982. Joe found work as a roadie and then learned a little sound engineering, then formed his own band, Shalita, which lasted until 1999. He rarely performs these days, but he's planning to retire in a few years, and he dreams of returning to music. Art doesn't have an age limit. That's the good thing about art. After learning about Sweet Taste of Africa, we got to thinking about the Black rock artists who work in the Twin Cities today. Some are relatively well-known, having placed in best new band polls or opened for bigger acts. But so many of them have never been in the spotlight. And as we've learned while relying on microfilm and internet archives this season, the press has the power to preserve artists' legacy. So we decided to talk back to this narrative. Our producer Cecilia met up with a few Minnesota Black rockers, Matt Slater and Himes Alexander of The Smokes, plus Naughty McGill of Gully Boys, and asked them, what musicians inspire you? What constitutes a good legacy? What do you love about rock music? Um, I feel pure joy. It's like I could feel the oxytocin rushing through my body. It feels really good. Naughty drums and sings in the Minneapolis rock band Gully Boys, who've performed in the First Avenue main room and many times in the entry. I'd always wanted to drum. My mom said no, and I was a child, of course. A past partner was a very good drummer, and he had two or three drum kits. Um, so I just sat down at one of the drum sets he had set up at his house and just started playing. What do you think of when you hear somebody talking about rock, or like, what is rock to you? What do you feel when you're listening? Everyone's playing their own instrument. Like, that's the sound you hear is the sound that is being put out, and I think that's really cool. I think that's a really awesome aspect of rock. Although they're a young artist, Nadia's already thinking about legacy. I will always be loud about what I believe in, and I'm always willing to be corrected. And I just want to be known and remembered as someone who used whatever platform that I had to make Minneapolis a better and safer place for all people, but mostly femmes, fat femmes, uh, femmes of color, and whatever space they choose to occupy. Every opportunity that I have, I try to encourage femmes to join a band. And then I specifically make a point to encourage black femmes to join a band because I feel like there is a lot of gatekeeping and there's a lot of tokenization that happens, which is very annoying. I think the best way to kind of combat that tokenism and um, gatekeepiness is to just be loud about it. And rock music is a great way to be loud about it. And you kind of just make your own space. Nadi says they've taken inspiration from other Black rockers. I was obsessed with this band called Dance Gavin Dance when I was younger. I really was into pop punk music and a little bit of emo music. And Dance Gavin Dance... I loved, and then I found out their guitarist was 
a black musician. And I was like even more in love because it's very rare for me to see anyone who looked like me, not only in the crowd at the shows that I would like to go to, but on stage. Also the smokes locally, two black, amazing punk rockers. And my favorite is that Matthew, the drummer, rocks an afro while he's playing. They sing about racial uh, experiences that they've had. And they're not, I, I appreciate that they're transplants as well. Like, they're not even from here, but um, they've kind of came here and they were like, what's up? Like, <laughs> we are here to rock. <laughs> so <laughs> that's amazing. Um, we are here to rock. <laughs> honestly, like, they really did. I remember I saw them for the first time. It was like maybe a week or two weeks after they had moved here. And I was like, welcome, welcome. Let's do this. Like, y'all came right in on the pavement. 100 miles per hour, and I was so stoked to have them here. Black pride is something that's difficult for a lot of people to swallow, but is, it an, is inevitable as you look at the influence that black uh, culture has had on American society, especially. That's Himes Alexander of The Smokes, a two-piece garage punk indie soul band who've been performing together for about five years. Himes and his cousin Matt Slater grew up in Spokane, Washington, and moved to the Twin Cities in 2017. They've learned from many black artists around the world. Uh, this is a really broad one to start with, but I, I really love Fela Kuti. Uh, I've always loved Fela Kuti for lots of reasons. I got like a soft spot for funk, and he is like a, just comes off as like this African king to me, and then jumps around musically so freely, like just like feels the spirit of the music. I mean, it's like, oh my God, this music is so black, so free, captures his voice so well that like even now I hear it, and it just like, it makes you feel good inspires you to actually say something, say something real, and it doesn't have to be, like, a downer. I'd like to talk about a collective like Odd Future who has a bunch of different bands, a bunch of different projects coming out of the same collective, and there's a wide range of eclectic taste when it comes to all of that. You know, Steve Lacey is doing some sort of indie thing. The internet is uh, electronic R&B, and even goes out, outside of that, and... Uh, sweatshirt and Tyler the Creator are, are enigmatic. Like you can't really hold them down to one thing. And then there was the drummer from uh, God, why can't Yellow I... Card. Yeah, the drummer from Yellow Card. Who who cares about Yellow Card? <laughs> the drummer from Yellow Card was this black dude with dreads. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to do that. I literally, I was like, I didn't even like their music. I was just like, yes, cool. The Smokes have brought up several musicians who made an impact on them. For me, Whitney Houston, Nina Simone and Janis Joplin have probably been my biggest musical influences. Years after Houston's death, her friend Robin Crawford told The Guardian about their queer past, saying, quote, Our friendship was intimate on all levels. Both Simone and Joplin also held relationships with both men and women. And going back to the beginnings of rock and roll, artists like Sister Rosetta Tharp, Big Mama Thornton, and Little Richard experimented not only with instruments and genre, but also with their sexualities. 
Many beacons of musical creativity have occupied many different identities. There is no prime or perfect human being, whatever HR or anyone else might say. Like it or not, bad brains are a part of rock history. It's true that their actions were garbage, but it's also true that they inspired members of Fishbone, Rage Against the Machine, Horror, and many more groups to make rock music. They played First Avenue during a complicated and sometimes tense time in the club's history with respect to race. Many of the Black bands who played there were not supported by press, radio play, or strong ticket sales, and community members noticed. In fact, one of the people who would have been paying attention was Prince. Thank you, Zoe. In 1983, the year after the Bad Brains show, Prince would take the First Avenue stage to change the club and music history forever. As we'll see in our next episode, the artist who catapulted First Ave from a well-known local rock club to an international destination was a genre-fluid black rocker. And that was no coincidence. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Zoe Challenger and me, Cecilia Johnson. I produced this episode with research and consulting by Taylor Seberg. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Icetap. This episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans. Thank you to Brett Baldwin, Rick Carlson, Matthew Galloway, Dermon Yenaho, Jackie Renzetti, David Safar, and Jesse Wiza for additional support. If you'd like to learn more about Who's Gurdu, check out The Current's five-part podcast, Do You Remember? If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or tell a fellow music fan it's out there. To get in touch, please send an email to rewind at thecurrent.org. To find a transcript of this episode, go to thecurrent.org slash rewind. And thank you for rolling with these mid-season changes. We have one more episode hosted by Mark Wheat next week, and after that, we'll share a bonus episode about his personal connection to First Avenue. I miss him already, and I know you might too. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.